bags are packed. They're filled with granola and water and skis, just in case. Like a whole backpack full of granola? Like a whole backpack a full of granola. granola. That's, well, we figured that one backpack for each thing was best. Did okay. we pack water? There's a, yeah, there's a, ba- there's there's a bag for, for that, that. too. Okay. There's a whole bag for that. Okay. And then we have our climbing ropes. We got carabiners. We got chocks and cams. We got uh, climbing shoes. 510. We've got uh, our climbing guides. 510 is a climbing shoe company. It's like, it's, like it's 130. So it's, like we're, it's not even close. Yeah. We're ready. We're ready to go on this episode of Classical Stuff You Should Know, which is a podcast about classical things, not climbing things. It's about book things and philosophy things. And it is brought to you by three gentlemen who all work at a classical school called Veritas Academy in Texas. I am AJ Hannenberg, and I am joined by Thomas Magby. Hello. And Graham Donaldson. Hi. And today we're talking about climbing, as far as I know. Uh, we're going to learn how to make a double, double figure eight knot uh-huh. and climb safely. Uh-huh. We're going to belay. We're going to watch for rock fall. Mm-hmm. We're going to ha- learn how to take a lead climb fall and not really injure, injure ourselves and avoid rope burn. All of these things are important when you're climbing Parnassus. These are, this is good. Yeah. All right. So this is part two of, I don't know how many episodes that we'll spend on talking about a book called Climbing Parnassus. If you did not listen to episode one, you'll probably be lost and you should go back and listen to the first one. I mean, I don't know how many parts we can have because that's a library book. You need to get that back at some point. Hey, you know what I've done is I have returned it and checked it out immediately. Oh, there you go. Three times at this yeah, point. There's so. not a hold on it. <laughs> Which is, should boggle the mind. Okay. So it's uh, Austin Public Library. So all 800,000 people within like Austin proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No one has put a hold on Climbing Parnassus. Well, it's because so. there's, there's lots of multiple. There's multiple copies. There is only one copy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware of there being only one copy of this book that no one wants to read. <sighs> That's why but, we do it for but you. But after this podcast, surely like the numbers will shoot I would actually kind of right love up. if someone listening in the Austin area put a hold on this book and forced me to return it. That would actually kind of be hilarious. <laughs> it's probably going to be one of our students and they'll just I'm, walk past your office and taunt you with the book. <laughs> with the book. Right. I'm, I, I think I would be okay with that. Just pulling out your tabs one by one. Yeah, seriously. Tab. It's still covered tab. in colorful tabs, tab. listener, which you can't really tell right now. So I guess I have a week and a half until this episode goes live to get my tabs taken care of slash to renew the book. All right. So we, I won't rehash the entirety of the last episode, but just so the metaphor of this book makes some sense. And if it's been, you know, a month since you listened to the last episode, the book is titled climbing Parnassus. The centering image of this book is as follows. Mount Parnassus is a, a big old mountain that hovers over the uh, temple at Delphi. It's in like central Greece. Mount Parnassus, a limestone mass hovering over the ancient shrine of Delphi, has stood as a prime symbol of poetic inspiration and perfection since the dawn of the West. It fixed anxious eyes on the heavens. The Castilian Springs, being a sacred source of life-sustaining water, trickled far below. The hushed tones of ritual echoed from its slopes, but over time it came to embody those things which man at his best wishes, and ought to wish, to achieve. It became a sign of his better, divinely inspired self. To climb Parnassus was to strive after the favor of Apollo and the nine muses Uh, while, and then he goes on from there, but so it's going after difficult things. Uh, The specific difficult thing that Tracy Lee Simmons, the author of this book will talk about is the studying of language, the studying of Latin and Greek. Um, This is from the very end of the introduction, which we covered last time. Finally, a concession. Many wonder whether the classical languages themselves make for an absolutely essential ingredient in a classical education. Can someone be classically educated without a reading knowledge of Greek and Latin? This sticky question, despite dogmatic claims on both sides, should not be answered glibly. One must probe a little to discover precisely what kind of knowledge the questioner wishes to gain. The judgment of history is no. And certainly, I argue for the full package, the deluxe deal, declensions, conjugations, syntax, lexicons, verse, verse exercises, and all. He goes on from there. But it, but just to say, he's arguing for classical education. He is using a, a historic definition of classical education, which includes a reading knowledge of Greek and Latin as what is taught. So this is another podcast to, that's going to make me feel super guilty. Yes, that's I was going to say, <laughs> bad news, boys. None of us are classically that's, educated. Which is so. kind of wonderful, yeah we should not be doing this podcast. Well, <laughs> some reviewers feel that way too. So, <laughs> so here we are. Um, uh, okay. Can all three of us talk at the same time? Ready? One, two. <laughs> Guys, why aren't you talking <laughs> right now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Good. Crushing it. Okay. So there are three chapters in this book. I'm actually, I'm going to, depending on how much you all want to talk about it. The first chapter 
so there's an, the introduction which i just read the very conclusion of the first chapter is titled bent twigs and trees inclined so the images of each of the chapter titles will be literally climbing parnassus climbing up this mountain so we're starting at the very bottom the first chapter is primarily a defense of reading great books of reading old books i'm not going to spend a lot of time here because i think that's like the whole point of this podcast and is probably a conclusion we would agree with sure without taking the language side of things. I'm sure we've covered it in a previous podcast somewhere. I do this podcast so people don't have to read old books. <laughs> wait, I'm taking wait, the bullet for you guys. No. <laughs> Wouldn't that mean... Anyway, we're horrible people if that's true. Please go read all the books we talk about. If you don't read all of them, then you are failing. We had know. someone tweeted us saying that he's reading the Iliad because of us. Yeah. So good, good job, buddy. Hope you enjoy the Iliad. My heart goes out to you. Yeah. Well, that's um, great. Don't get too attached to uh, anyone to Hector. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why would you say that? Anyway. Spoilers, man. Yeah, oh, seriously, sorry. man. Though how, it's been out for how many thousands of years? Does it still count as spoilers? Okay. So I'll just, I'll read a few uh, sections that I particularly appreciated from this first chapter and we'll speed through it to get to the, the second. Um, these are ideas and concepts we've covered before, just for what it's worth. The Greeks and Romans yearned for a common culture. Paideia is the Greek word customarily translated to mean education, but enculturation better approximates its essence. Paideia was about instilling core values, enunciating standards, and setting moral precepts. A French historian of ancient education held that paideia signifies culture, not in the sense of something active and preparational like education, but of something perfected, a mind fully developed, the mind of a man who has become truly man. One of you, someone's done an episode on paideia, haven't they? Probably. I mean, I'm sure we've talked about it. Yeah. Um, but that d- does that resonate as a value of reading ancient works, that there's some sort of enculturation happening there? Yes. Yeah. You want to say I more mean, about this that? I mean, this is also... Like the idea that education is enculturation and paideia is culturing resonates. I mean, if you think of where do all of the, the if you think of the culture wars as like a 20th century phrase, um, where do those culture wars get waged but in the curriculums, in what books kids are reading and um, um, anyway, so just, I don't know, just the idea that a school is a, uh, is a incubator of culture uh, makes sense. It's the Emerson quote that's I pay the school teacher to teach my kid, but it's my it's his peers that actually educate him or some it sounds quippier than that. But hmm. yeah, that there is a, a cultural there's an enculturation aspect to it is all that to say. Mm-hmm. Um, he in this portion will cover the ideal of um, humanism as the as what is being sought after through classic works and this is what allows us to read these books today and still find value in them that the goal of the books is not or of ancient thought is not only make a great greek though that's a, a part of it it's it's toward human excellence it's toward there's something like universal between the work that's presented and us today that we can relate to and appreciate and admire um he says here, these are the seeds of humanist, humanistic endeavor to climb the heights of human possibility, to reflect on man's will to know and understand himself, placed as he is in a turbulent world, made all the more violent and chaotic by his passions and by his perpetual fight to free himself from their fetters. We are on this planet to rise above lower nature. Is that well, something we learned from last podcast? The only way to do that is math. <laughs> Which is not the answer I expected. Though for what it's worth... Uh, I wonder if this guy's going to say it's Greek and Latin, not math. <laughs> uh, sick. Uh, I don't know, man. Though, just in line with the last episode, um, this is uh, still in the first chapter, which we're about to jump out of. Certainly the most sublime work ever penned on Paideia in the building of common culture is Plato's Republic, said by French philosopher Rousseau to be the finest treatise on education ever written. Didn't hmm. expect Rousseau to be the one to say that, but anyway. Yeah, he's got some like totalitarian leaning <laughs> so, so he would really <laughs> i was gonna say it's the finest spirit. treatise yeah. on education I mean, ever written yeah God, that's I mean, the one really don't think so steal all the kids from their parents uh-huh. teach them your own ideals and goals gym until they're 20 mm-hmm. math until they're 30 mm-hmm. finest treatise dialectics till they're 30 you're spending 10 episodes on this why well, are you <laughs> because i mean it's an ex- exploration for me too yeah sure I just see what you actually think about it. I think the Odyssey is a pretty good, solid Paideia thing. But I guess that doesn't talk a lot about education. But this is the the ancient war is between the poets and the philosophers. Yes. Right? Like this is 
the conversation. We didn't invent this problem. Like, this no. is something that's been going on, and it was even happening in the ancient world. Do the poets have the say in what and how man should be educated, or do the philosophers have say? Yeah. And in many with the in many way, the philosophers on their worst end. So. If you want to be uncharitable to the philosophers, the worst thing they do is produce kind of technocrats or or this sort of centrally organized society that is sort of abhorrent to the notions of freedom. But then the poets on their, their worst side of things produce citizens of um, – actually, I don't know. What would be the uh, what would be the negative thing that, that if the poets were in charge? Which is like base, yeah, licentiousness right. and – It would be all and, the emotions. Um, yeah. Which is like waterish uselessness. Yeah. Yeah. But po- anyway. But poetry is good, right? Okay. Um, okay. So this is, that's all from that first chapter. I'm not going to go into that. I don't think there's much that is controversial for us. And again, listener, this is a horrible first episode for you. Please go back to the first of uh, Climbing from Nassus or literally, I don't know, any other episode. Okay. So this, I'll go then into the second chapter of the book, which is where things will get more interesting because the first chapter is not really focused on uh, Greek and Latin. He's, he's not really focused on the language aspect at that point. He's saying there's something valuable in the works themselves. We already kind of agree with him at that point. The question is that I think we'll get to, is it worth the additional effort and work to get to the original works themselves, as opposed to the translated works we use, which still give us those benefits of enculturation of, of Paideia. Um, so the second chapter is titled prospect from the Castilian spring. The Castilian spring was referenced in the very first paragraph at the beginning, but in approaching Mount Parnassus, uh, what you cross before you get to the mountain itself is the spring. Um, Mm. there are um, a number of stories that relate to it. Um, uh, apparently at some point the muses hung out there. Uh, the, yeah, naturally the oracles would wash, um, would wash themselves and quench their thirst before going up to the, the, um, the temple. Uh, Apparently Apollo might've killed Python, uh, at this spring, um, so there are a number of stories that are tied to this location. I don't know that story. Henry, you know that story? Apollo and Python? I do not. Is that like a coding thing? <laughs> yeah, he uh, he learned. <laughs> he crushed it. He crushed Python. He figured out it was machine a learning boot camp. <laughs> now he's making seventy k out the gate, <laughs> crushing it. Uh, I don't have a good version of this for you. Uh, I'll keep trying to look this up. Anyway, so there's some stuff that happened at that spring. So rock and roll. Okay, so. What is the point of passing the spring? What is the point of trying to go beyond this, like um, this quench thirst to then climb the mountain, uh, to climb Mount Parnassus, to face the difficulties? Beyond? Yeah, why not just stay at the spring? Yeah, seriously, because it's like really awesome, yeah. right? Okay, so let's try a few different ideas and see which ones. Um, well, let's start here. The Greeks and Romans steered their education by ideas we now condemn as regressive. School was a grinding, sometimes bitter experience with nary a finger lifted to sweeten the pill. Children began their education at home where training and literacy walked hand in hand, as we have seen, with the inculcation of cultural ideals and habits of upright character. Parents and tutors worked hard, as Plato wrote, so that each child may excel. And as each act and word occurs, they teach and impress upon him that which is just and that unjust. One thing noble, another base. One holy, another unholy. And that his is to do this and not to do that. So there's a moral aspect to education, which he's talking about. But that first idea is the one I'm, I'm curious about. So school is a grinding, sometimes bitter experience with nary a finger lifted to sweeten the pill. How does that sound as an educational model? Mm, I feel like if we had if it was shorter so if we if if education like on a day if you think of sort of your modern school now it's like eight hours a day five days a week so if it was grinding and bitter that sucks but if school was like three hours a day five days a week i feel like you could make it real tough Mm -hmm. and not miserable but just super challenging and then you're done and then you can go off and do other things and be a kid and play outside or whatever uh, I feel like sometimes there's that there, there's something to be said for having it be really difficult in a short period of time as opposed to eight, eight like, hours a day. Fun and trying to make it, you know, exciting and and uh, trying to keep like holding holding anybody's attention for eight hours a day is a challenge. Not uh, no, Veritas isn't an eight hours a day, but you 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 know what I'm saying. Sure, but even that idea of having to hold attention, I think, is a. I don't know if that's how they would describe that. Exactly. Is that uh, AJ said last episode that uh, in Plato's conception, you aren't forced to be there. Does mm-hmm. that, so you're not holding mm-hmm. like 
you're there because you want to be. So you're not holding attention. You're, mm-hmm. If you care enough to get, if you care enough to work for 30 years to become a ruler of the city, you're going to stick with it. Right. Cause you know, what's on the other side of that. I think children are square pegs uh-huh. and adult adulthood is a round hole. There you go. So and they should cut be off those. introduced to that horror as early as possible. There you go. Well, now and you're burning start hammering. beaten from them. I don't know about that. Doesn't that seem like a bummer? No, that's not true. Okay. Um, well, though, I think you, okay. <laughs> Did I get it right? Is well, he, he he'll, he, he, he'll follow this direction apart. This is, this is dark. I, I honestly go back and forth between the two that like school should be effortless and in, in line with the enjoyment of the human sense of discovery. And then on the other side, it should be small doses of really difficult. I mean, maybe that's what I'm wondering. You don't learn grit if school is a party the whole time. Exactly. Sure. But you, but you also don't love. You also won't enjoy the act of learning if it's eight hours of grit a day. The, yeah, exactly. No one can do that. Not even someone who love. Like, I love to read. You love to read. We love learning. We are people for whom the act of learning is a joy. Mm-hmm. And none of us would read eight hours solid in a day or focus on one really difficult task for eight hours. Yeah. I, so anyway, it's it's tough. I don't know. I think that there, if if we're talking about, C.S. Lewis has a, an essay called The Weight of Glory where he talks about the progression of enjoyment. And some things are a drudgery at the beginning. You have to learn the grammar mm-hmm. of a subject and sometimes that's terrible. Isn't you he do. talking, he's talking specifically about Latin, isn't he? He's talking about languages. Yeah, he yeah. does languages talk about languages. Mm-hmm. He says when you're learning your verbs and declensions and that sort of thing, it's terrible, but then you get to go and read the Aeneid in all of its original language and isn't that fantastic, mm-hmm. right? Just like, like the same with math, right? You got to learn your times tables and then eventually the real enjoyment comes in math when you are building your own house and figuring out your own catapults and doing all kinds of cool math things, right? Like, So I think without that hardship, you don't eventually get to the true enjoyment. Like scheduling makes this complicated, but imagine if you could get the students and figure out which classes they hated the most or found to be the most difficult and give that to them first thing in the day. And, and have to get it, it out of the way. Get it out of the way. Have them do the hard thing first, and then as the day goes on, they get the easier thing. Um, and really I've, lay the burden of getting them out of bed on their mom. <laughs> just sure. Good. If they don't want to get solved. out of bed and go yeah. to that first class, That's really put that on the parents. Yeah. No, but Hanenberg, the you, teachers as little. Have you not had the experience of teaching where the first and second period of the day are a lot more fruitful than the third and fourth period of the day? Anything post lunch. Everything is rough. exactly. Anything post lunch is rough, and it's not because of the laziness or because of the, you know, some sort of moral failing in the student. It's just at some point, especially when you're doing something difficult, something of a higher cognition, mm-hmm. if it was just like filling out forms all day, like in like this kind of school that yeah. I did. Well, they're tired and they have hot dog brain. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. they just had a bunch of hot dogs. And they need to sharpen their hot dog brain. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, well, hopefully oh, they we weren't go. sharp hot dogs yeah, because they'll cut then you. That's a problem. If they're frozen, if they're not yeah. frozen, mm-hmm. it's just. But um, will they hold an edge? To anyone who's yelling at their radio, um, I, uh, radio? Some, so, yeah, <laughs> like the, the thing that's playing, this is playing is out this? of a radio in a car. Do you not? You mean my Beats pill? Your Bluetooth uh, connected device in your car? What do you want me to say? Radio. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> it plays from the, whatever. Okay, so um, someone, I, I, don't, I do not remember. Oh, no, classical stuff Thank you should you. know. Yeah, exactly. A yeah, subsidiary uh-huh. of the. Of what? Say I don't it. know. Connectory. <laughs> yep. Yeah, thanks. Good. We have a radio station in um, Seattle that um, gave us a shout out. So I don't know. Maybe they play us. Um, so someone, I don't remember who, at Veritas quipped that um, there have been, com- there are essentially complaints about the difficulty of teaching any period of the day. If it's first period, they're still tired. If it's after lunch, they are. Uh, if it's right before lunch, then they are excited for lunch. If it's after lunch, they're lethargic. If it's the last period, then they're ready to leave. Like there's there's no perfect time period during the day, just to say that. Haters going to hate. Yeah, Haters I, dis- I disagree. Hate. I feel like first period and second period are always easier than third period and fourth okay. period. But anyway, whatever. This is good. Okay. So let me, uh, just because we brought this up of maybe what that uh, classroom experience would look like. This is an example of one uh, from the same chapter. The routine of the classroom would not invite a modern temperament inured to softer methods. Discipline was harsh. The teacher was supreme in power before students. When not leading the class in unison in unison recitation, he lectured authoritatively, even dictatorially. The study of a particular poem, for instance, would begin with a preface of explanation, perhaps a few words about the poet, his importance, and the virtues he exemplified. 
The stage might also include a summary form of textual criticism where the teacher may offer corrections in passages where versions differed, as they often did in the age before printing. Next came the actual reading, where pupils likely practiced declaiming properly or reading aloud um, for effect. Then came exegesis, where the text was carefully explained, cases and conjugations examined, with the teacher providing glosses of unfamiliar words. Finally came the judgment of quality, passed by the teacher, usually taking the form not only of literary judgment, the literary merit may be assumed by the work's uh, nest in the curriculum, it's in the curriculum, but also of moral reinforcement. Does that sound similar to when you all are teaching through books or poems? Yeah. Really? It does, actually. It's interesting. Yeah. You want to say um, more? I don't do as much about the, the justification of its quality, but the fact that it has been selected and put into the curriculum. Like, it sort of feels silly for me to be like, all right, guys, let's see if we actually think Milton's good at this. But you because, must have people who say, I don't like Milton. Yeah. And then I just say, well, you know, you're 15. <laughs> No, I mean, sure. I, and also me, if I say I don't like Milton, the other th- it's like I've never written an epic poem right. and I'm, you know, it's the, the Lindy effect, right? Like this thing's, this thing's past the test of time and Donaldson And is likely won't. to exist as many years into the future. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the Lindy effect that if it's existed for 2000 years, it will probably exist another 2000? Yeah. I think that's Lindy. And anything that I teach in the class has less potential for that i don't know it's right. just yeah it's the the passing judgment when you're when you're talking about yeah you the great are book seems a little a little for any of us to do that right? you're sure. a 10th grade teacher yeah at a small private school in mm-hmm. texas you don't have the quality to declare that milton is not fit that's right like milton dante shakespeare these books choose us right. we don't choose them to put in, to go into the curriculum right yeah, the general consensus among great men over the ages has been, and, and un, non-great men over the ages has been that these books are valuable. Who are mm-hmm. you to go against not only the writer himself, but this huge weight of criticism before you? That's right. I, I always have to bring my own humility to the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't like Homer. I was like, well, that's because you're not ready for it. Yeah. But then maybe, so th- uh, this is an argument that I've glossed over. Maybe this will be more compelling in light of that view toward great books. But by 1834, as another epoch reconsidered this legacy, this legacy of um, Greek and Latin, and entertained more modern cultural goals, the English headmaster Thomas Arnold sounded alarms. Expel Greek and Latin from your schools, he wrote, and you confine the views of the existing generation to themselves and their immediate predecessors. You will cut off so many centuries of the world's experience and place us in the same state as if the human race had come into existence in the year 1500. <laughs> um, and that's when he was, was writing. Uh, no, he wrote this a few hundred years after that, but that's what he, that's what he means. The, sure. the stage right before and then his stage. Um, is there anything, so to have this view toward, there are certain works that have been passed down generation after generation, which um, lifts them up. It's a sign that we should continue to teach them because they've been worth, in many cases, transcribing by hand to pass down, right? Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any argument then to this mode of education that involved Greek and Latin as like the foundation of the educational system? Like that's a reason to continue to teach those things. That it had been that way for a long time? Yeah. Yeah, but we don't live in an age that values the consistency of something done in the past. Like our heroes are those who break down barriers or who destroy, you know, who sort of, um, uh, you know, get rid of the things gone past. Mm-hmm. So any anything old is immediately suspect of being, um, well, if you have a progressive view of the, of history, uh, at some point, any, there, there's this, there's this point in history that anything that preceded that was necessarily backwards and evil and now we're on this like eternal progress forward. So there is a. So this is why we sort of have this, this um, hand wringing over always purifying the curriculum. Right. In all fairness, didn't we do a whole episode on why translations are fine? We did an episode. I did an episode. Uh, there's no we. Hey, we I were did, there. We were there. Okay. We I did an here. episode on how translations create their own works. So the translated uh, the Robert Fagel's. Iliad becomes its own work at the point that it's translated. Does that mean it, it is now its own great work and can be read 
as such. Mm-hmm. That's true, but we I, I remember a conversation where it was saying, like, if I learn Greek and Latin, I am not steeped in the culture. Mm-hmm. I have not studied only those things. Yep. I have not I do not have the kind of grasp on the language as someone who has been studying it for 20 years and then has translated the Iliad. So why should I trust my reading any more than a decent translation done by Fagels? Right. Simmons would argue um, that that false dichotomy should be erased. And instead, you should, in fact, study both the language and the cultural context to then develop your own opinion on the. Again, he's he's arguing for a, a method of education wherein you've received 12 years of Latin and Greek by the time, I don't know, about 12. Sounds exhausting. But, sure. By the time you then go to college and study it some more. Like right. it's all, it wouldn't just be a, you took an elective for a few years. This is a, the foundation of your education, the entire time you were in, in uh, primary school, whatever that's called, uh, would be based on those languages. And then you would get off to college and study it some more for kicks and giggles. Mm, okay. So what are some of the reasons that um, Simmons is arguing here. One of them is the the difficulty of the language itself is a reason to study it. That because it is difficult, um, it trains a certain um, grittiness. It, tra- it trains a certain um, force to stick with it. Uh, like there is a moral component to sticking with something that is complicated and difficult. Um, even when you don't really want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a form of benefit to learning the language. I mean, I love talking to our Latin four kids and kids who've even stuck it out to go into Latin five. And I love their gallows humor that they have about it. Like it's hard, but you can tell they're super proud of, of the fact that they do it. They all, I think at the end of the year, they all take their Caesar's Gallic Wars and like burn it. Oh, as a, oh bummer. Or no, maybe that was just one. But then there's, there's this little bit of like, I have conquered the hard thing. Like I have achieved um, the reading of this thing that is difficult or them being able to read Virgil's Aeneid in the original Latin. Like right. I have a, I have a tremendous amount of jealousy for that. Sure. Yeah. Same. And um, same. I don't know. I, I do you all feel like as you... Uh, AJ, you look skeptical. You don't, you don't look like you're a man of jealousy. I don't like <clears throat> that as an argument for doing something. Sure, lifting rocks and moving them from one pile to another is difficult. I don't see that as a reason we should actually do it. But it isn't working out, basically. It's a fancier version of lifting rocks and moving them for the purpose of getting stronger. Like a, uh, a squat rack is no different than rocks when you get yeah. down to it. Sure, but why Latin? Why can't I do any other hard this is, intellectual yeah, thing? Right. So, uh, thank you. So this is only one piece of an argument. You're totally spot on. I think if this were the only piece of the argument, it's a bad one. Yeah, I agree, that's huh? what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah totally This is a, totally a, a solitary argument. As, as an extra help, it's fine, but yeah. as a sole reason, totally. I don't buy it. Yeah, that because there are lots of hard things you could do that would work out your mind that aren't Latin. I totally accept that. Like math. Like math, like, like 10 years. Yeah. Does Plato make any comment on the difficulty? Just to Graham's question earlier of like the length of day or the... I don't know, the rigor of that program? Or does he just say study la- study math for 10 years? He just says study math for 10 years. I don't think he makes any comment. I, I assume that he would, like that's that's a childbearing age as far as he's concerned. Mm-hmm. And so you would have, oh no, because you don't have to take care of the kids. Never mind. You're fine to do your someone own else, Yeah, someone so else. So you've got care. other things going on, I guess. Yeah. Uh, military, probably. You're probably serving in the, in the As wars. you're learning math also? Uh, yeah. I okay. mean, they, they have wars. You have to do your defense. And so you got to be part of it. Okay. And these are the guardians who are doing that. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that, uh, yeah, totally spot on. That's only one piece of the argument, but a piece nonetheless, that there is something to the challenge that makes it, that there is a benefit. There's a benefit to the challenge. Uh, said elsewhere, uh, Latin was made the groundwork of education, not for the beauty of its classical literature, but nor because the study of a dead language was the best mental gymnastic. That's what we were just saying or the only means of acquiring a masterly freedom in the use of living tongues, but because it was the language of educated men throughout Europe employed for public business, literature, philosophy, and science, it was essential to the unity and therefore enforced by the authority of the Western church. Isn't that interesting? Is it? So it makes the groundwork, but it's reinforced by other people who are learning it as well. I wonder that just reading, does that undermine the case that he's making since there's no longer that enforced authority does that undermine the importance of? Well, the I was language? just going to say if if the reason, like if it was used for unity mm-hmm. across all of Europe and it was enforced because it maintained that unity, why aren't we studying English or Chinese? Because more people speak Chinese. Interesting. Um, 
he because will, right now those are the two primary languages of the world. He will elsewhere argue that, I think we talked about this last episode too, that to learn a foreign language is to better understand your language as well because you have to um, learn everything new. You have to learn everything for the first time by learning a new language while there's so much that as I'm speaking English right now, I'm not thinking about conjugation or nouns or like all that is just baked into because I've spoken it for 30 years or whatever. But when you have to learn a new language, the, the, the rigor and the learning every step of it requires you to think more about it. Well, all those pieces you learn in Latin also apply to English. That's the, there's a logic to the language. So that's why not Chinese. Because Chinese would not translate very well back into English. It's so totally different a language. Because it, yeah, because our language grew from Latin. And yeah. so understanding Latin is, means a better understanding of our language. Yeah. Whereas learning Chinese might not be. It would not same. do that. No, because yeah. it, it is, and it's especially the, for the, on the written side. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting, like, because you, um, it, most of it is pairing of two images put together to create a new image. Um, so there's something to learn there, but that lesson does not help for English. Maybe mm-hmm. is the right way to say that. Um, interesting i hadn't thought about that okay um so then so what are the reasons it's difficult uh, it teaches a certain type of logic um but then also there was historically a unity that came about from studying this together and so maybe we only see that unity among four people taking their fourth year of latin but we don't see it among many more people than that uh we'll go what strikes us now, despite the high-flown rhetoric and noble ideas, is the practicality of the humanistic mind. So, again, what is one of the goals of accessing older ideas, older literature, um, older thinkers, is to uh, get to some form of humanism. Does someone want to Someone have a working definition of humanism? It sounds like the way he's talking about it is just that a belief, which I think in the 20th century almost everybody believed, but I feel like maybe it's breaking down now, that all human beings in the past and in the present have a united, I don't know what you want to call it, soul or some sort of understanding that like the things that people loved and cared and, and thought about have been the same for all human history. Mm. That, that, that there's nothing so, that each individual culture is still bound up by a human nature, and each individual culture is an expression of the human nature, but you can study that human nature and by studying human nature understand what is common What is common among human beings. Sure. Whereas, I guess the opposite of, of a humanism would be some sort of, of, sort of hyper-cultural determinism, that your culture completely makes up who you are, mm-hmm. and there is little to no, and probably the, the strong version being there is no currency between between cultures, yep. that cultures determine who you are, and and um, you can't really praise or condemn anything cross culturally because it is so different. Sure, that's fair. Um, maybe so. Maybe the side of it that there's something, yeah. So the universal, there's something across all cultures that mm-hmm. can be known about humans, and that is agreed upon by all humans. Mm-hmm. Those are good. Yeah, the the phrase I think of one is something that Chesterton says, where he says, the farmer of today and the farmer of 4,000 years ago looked at the weather with the same expression, right? Like, sure. you know, thought about, you know, had the same sort of concerns about, about their day and about the weather. Sure. And that kind of shared human experience of, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that definition? No, just that I think it might be too complicated. The definition for humanism, oh, sure, right? Yeah, I maybe when I think of the word, I think of the study of human excellence. That, that's what I was going to say. Just yeah. the the notion that humans have high potential yes. and the study of how to get there. Yes, which includes everything Graham just said of that human excellence exists across time, across culture. There is some something common to learn across multiple cultures about that excellence, but it's the same fundamental thing we're all trying to find: how to be a great man, how to be a great woman. And to, to sort of highlight what humanism is, you could put it in contrast with other doctrines, perhaps the doctrines of the church that focused on, right, the excellence of the man mm-hmm. only in relation to a creator, sure. right? So there is humanism there, but it's a different kind of humanism than perhaps some philosophers have pursued. Yes. And then you could put it up against the naturalistic notion of a human that he is an animal and that he is no better than any other animal and perhaps even a plague upon this earth. Yeah. Right? I, I would not call that humanism. No. Uh, and... 
you're getting at something. Humanism does not make a religious claim necessarily. So nope. you can be, so that humanism is what allows us to read. We are a Christian school. We read pagan authors. We can read those works and appreciate them because we see human excellence in them. There's no, um, there are gods, but they're different than the Christian God. Does that, but does that make sense? There's something common in what they're pursuing and what we're pursuing human excellence across thousands of years. For sure. And there have been Christian humanists and Catholic sure. humanists and, put and those together. Sure. people in the sure. church. Right. They, they see don't, what humans are, sure. image but, of God, and they want to make it awesome. Yeah. But you don't, you don't have to pair humanism with Christian humanism or... Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Typically, I would say humanism is outside the church. Would be more of a, um, a non-religious um, mm-hmm. worldview. Yeah. So just to, just to start there. Okay. So um, he, this is him talking then about humanism again. So... Again, what strikes us now, despite the high-flown rhetoric and noble ideas, is the practicality of the humanistic mind. Humanism was um, humanism involved itself with words and things. The humanist wished to be useful, and what could be more useful to the city than the virtuous citizen? Book learning did not stand on its own. The humanist of the Renaissance wished, above all, to complete his personality. Distinction in social life was marked by power of conversation and uh, uh, and by personal carriage, by resourceful leisure and dignified old age. So the humanist wished to be useful. That's the, this next idea here that, um, in studying old ideas, we find human greatness, the purpose of which is to be helpful to whatever society, city, whatever you are a part of. Does this strike as something that is also useful in a classical education? To be useful? Yeah. I think so. I mean, um, the, the cliche being that the classical education is producing politicians. That's kind of the cliche or statesmen. But the, the genesis of that idea being that you are creating individuals for, for whom the greater society would want and need. Right. I think, yeah, totally. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a statesman is, is a useful insert, person. He's a useful person to right. his society. Yeah. I mean, if we want to hearken it back to Plato, right, you can't right. climb out of the cave and not go back. I guess I, I recently had a conversation with someone who was a critic of classical education and their point was that classical education revels in being an unproductive or, or use, I think they phrased it as a useless education in that, uh, we're not teaching welding. Thank you. Yeah. So, or when we separate liberal and servile arts, like the liberal arts are the useless ones and that's an intentional, they're for their own good. That's what makes them liberating as opposed to a servile art, which is done for the good of something else. Um, anyway, that, that's just a thought that struck me that uh, Simmons clearly disagrees with that viewpoint. I don't know if that's something you all have come across or thought about before. And this person wanted an education based solely on... This is a father who was trying to think through arts, like on, education on, for their kid. Mm-hmm. And then what they were thinking was, I want my kid to be able to like get a job when mm-hmm. they um, graduate high school. And so if we teach them useless subjects for 12 years, like... Are they actually ready to go out into the world after that? Or do they only want to go into the light that Plato described and stay there forever? My thought, I think we've talked about this before, but the goal of education is to make it so that they can, if they choose, study welding, grasp it quickly, and then do that work. But I want to educate not just the welding portion of his life, but the portion when he gets home. Right. Right. I want him to be a happy, well-rounded person. You can weld really well and be totally miserable. And as a father, I wouldn't want that for my kids. Sure. Although welders do make a stack of cash, so you can't be that miserable. <laughs> Money has anyway, whatever. Money has nothing <laughs> to do with happiness. That's true. It has something to do with happiness. I think it's beyond seventy five thousand dollars. Like, it doesn't matter. Instead of you don't want to make schooling isn't about making a lawyer, it's about making a man who can make himself a lawyer. Mm. Yeah, there you go. That kind of idea. And so then there needs to be an argument. There needs to be a, a argument for how the liberal arts can make the man who can make himself into something. Yep. Which I think then is, again, that's what we're getting at here of the difficulty of approaching the, t- approaching me, a hard topic that then gets you into the best thought of the last thousands of years is worth something. Let me put it this way. It is not, it did not surprise me that the biggest blog on the internet that has to do with um, men becoming practical in their lives. So The Art of Manliness, that blog that's sort of talking about how specifically males but uh, can uh, live lives of purpose and, and basically practicality. How can, they, how can they grow up into being useful for society has slowly over time drifted into realizing that the way to do this is through 
basically a classical education. Like he's yep. he's drifted. Um, uh, what's his name? Brett McKay. Brett McKay, Brett McKay yep. has drifted more into a defense of classical liberal arts education as something that produces um, productive members of society, as making citizens, people who can make themselves into something. That that doesn't surprise me. That that doesn't come out of left field. Like I think that has um, borne itself out of out of sort of observable history, right? You know, think of what kind of education did Churchill have, right? Um, and, or what kind of education did Roosevelt have? Teddy Roosevelt, right. who was seemed to be like sort of the quintessential American practical man. Classical education. Was, a, was sort of a sickly young boy who had, who had uh, a classical education. So it's just, um, uh, we've tried the let's strip the classical education or let's strip the liberal arts out of education and give them just the skills based education, just the servile arts-based education for, we've been sort of creeping that way for 50 years and right. we haven't had a greater productive um, populace. We've had sure. a more luxuriating populace. Sure. Anyway. I think I've uh, talked here before about being a part of the Art of Manliness is they have a program called The Strenuous Life. Oh, that's right. How's that going? Great. You, uh, I mean, you look great. Uh, I don't, but that's kind of you. Uh, having a, anyway, whatever. Uh, so they, I'm excited to learn more about how well you are at smoking meat, which I hear you uh, have a badge in now. I do have a badge in that. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, but so strenuous life is basically boy Scouts for adults for men. It's for men. Sorry. Um, and one of the badges is a classics merit badge. And then the most recent one they've added is the monk badge, which is basically just more reading and time in silence. Anyway, so he's, he's Brett McKay is very clearly going that direction. Um, it's like, this is a thing that all people should experience. He's Mormon, though, which He's I Mormon. find fascinating. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I don't we'll, really know much about his. Anyway, he doesn't talk a lot about his religious beliefs. We'll get him. Well, okay. <laughs> Whatever that means. That, that felt very threatening. <laughs> Rock and roll. Okay. So just in the same vein, uh, Thomas Arnold would write in the preface to his edition of Thucydides that his effort was not an idle inquiry about remote ages and forgotten institutions, but a living picture of things present fitted not so much for the curiosity of the scholar as for the instruction of the statesman and the citizen. So just that same idea that the purpose of this education is not random stuff. The purpose of this education is not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but it's to improve lives and to improve the lives of those who are around the person who's classically educated. Okay, Thomas, you need, or fellas, both of you, you need to organize a school week, like like a oh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, okay. around these principles, and you are trying to to create the climbing Parnassus curriculum. Yeah. What does it look like, practically? Is five days enough to... Well, then, then it repeats. Oh, like, every year. like, uh, how would you, how do you practically um, put this into practice? Do you require do Latin you, from people who are classically like to, to equate classical education to learning languages, I think would be the way to do it. But again, part of me presenting this is not to say I'm 100% on this side. It's yeah. to, I'm reading the book, so I'm going to argue the side and then see where we get to. Because this is the really fascinating thing of classical education movement in the modern world is that you talk to every school and every school has kind of latched on to one thing that they have said, this is the really important thing. So there's some schools for whom Latin and the languages is, is most is paramount. There's other schools for whom doing everything through a very thought through historical line is paramount, right? Like everything is going to follow into history. So every student, even in their science class, you know, they're going to be logged in, lodged in a period of history. Right. Uh, we at Veritas, we probably have more of a bent towards the great books, just probably just because of, I don't know, how we've sort of developed over 10 years. But it's just sort of fascinating to me to see like what different schools kind of um, latch on to. And I'm sure it has to do with what kind of teachers that they have present to them. Like mm -hmm. if some school has a lifer Latin teacher that is there and deeply lodged into the culture, you're going to have a school that is, you know, um, strongly emphasizing its, its Latin program or, I, I don't know. It's just, um, I think of schools like sports franchises, right? Like there are sports teams where you have coaches that have a strong philosophy about how the game is going to be played. But then you have the practicalities in that, like you may not be able to find the players that can actually do that philosophy in, in how you want it to be played. And so how do you do this? How do you marry the sort of 
pure philosophical way of how to play the game versus the actual personnel that you have at hand. Um, schools are in the same are in the same situation. Yeah, but in the same it's way hard that fine Latin teachers. Sure, but in the same way that sports franchises train people that if there's a um, if there's a certain play that you need to have ready against a certain team, you prepare that mm-hmm. and you practice that and then have it ready. Um, we ha- we have had self-taught Latin teachers that um, yeah, at true. least taught Latin mm-hmm. one. Um, so I don't know. I think he, uh, uh, in the same way as a franchise that a school sets a direction and then you figure out the steps toward it, but mm-hmm. you still, what matters more is the direction you set. Does that, mm-hmm. that, that then mm-hmm. dictates where you go from there. So is your question right now, <clears throat> excuse me, is your question right now, at, are we at the end of the episode where you're like, are, am I, are we buying it? Is that the question? Uh, let me read one thing. Okay. Just in, uh, so Graham just said this and it's a funny quote from the very beginning that I didn't read last time. To many homeschoolers, classical education simply means the opposite of whatever is going on in those dreaded public schools. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> so yeah, sure. Go for it. I think, I think my trouble is that this feels, it feels a lot like the exception without a difference fallacy. And it's not quite though. It's not that, but, the exception without a difference fallacy is where you argue for an exception without actually giving any reasons why, but you, our author is giving several reasons He's giving why. giving reasons, right. But I don't see that those reasons are different than the reasons I could cook up for almost any other discipline. I could say that a classical education should be absolutely centered around math because math was mm-hmm. the unifying concept around all the buildings in all of Europe. Right. And that even if we didn't have language, we could have math. Right. Math has been taught in every culture. It brings in the... The Arabs, it brings in or the Arabic culture because we use Arabic numerals, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, we could even connect it with the Eastern canon through math, right? And math is one of those things that draws together all things. And if we want to go, we can pull from Plato, right? Pull, it tunes the mind to look towards the abstract rather than the concrete. It feels like you could make this same argument for everything, which is what Graham was pointing out, that every school seems to take a different bent, right? One focuses on history, one focuses really hard on Latin. One focuses really hard on English. It's not that they focus on it. It's that they use it as the organizing principle for the rest for of the school. Else, right? and, that, and that's yep. my point. It seems like you could use mathematics as the organizing principle. You could use English as the organizing principle. And for me, the test kind of is, has Latin stood the test of time? Yes. Great books have. Math has. Latin feels like it's dying. In the same way great books are. To compare, to make the argument... The and essentially everyone who was educated a hundred years ago was classically educated, mm-hmm. yeah. and to say that a much smaller percent are today, it, it's the same argument. We would then throw out classics in the same way. That's probably true. Classics are in the same dire straits as Latin, but I would I would think that Latin is in more dire straits. But that's just a generalization that I can't prove. For, so, yeah. um, but that that's what it feels like to me is that he's focusing on one specific section of the classical education and making it the organizing principle when it doesn't have to be. I, what? Oh, I think there's a, there's a point to that of, I think the the difficult part is to say that it was, that's, that's the Thomas Arnold quote from the very beginning that, um, that was, that was through the mid 1800s where essentially this had been the Latin and Greek had been the foundational principle and then was being thrown out. Like, right. I don't know. It made the... I think it's, I think we're, I think to make the argument on great books that we teach them because they're passed on to us and then not use that same argument for languages, I think is mm-hmm. missing the point. Um, but except that great books contain stories and moral content, whereas I'm not which sure that languages the, do. But with, that's his point to say that there is a moral content to the rigor of learning a language. Um, and also the things that we have that have survived in that language are the stories that we're talking about. Yes. And so I like, like if you go and you study, if you go and bought a book from the, you know, Barnes and Noble or whatever on how to learn French, you're going to have like the, the translated sentences are going to be like, which way to the library? You're going to get these like practical touristy sentences. Right. You go to Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. and you get things in Latin and you're going to be getting sentences that are from like Horace. Right. You're and you're going to be getting the, you know, you're, cause that's what we have. Um, or maybe there's now the push to like have the, and I wonder if they actually had this conversation when they were doing the Duolingo widget for Duolingo in Latin was, do we, and and they came down on like, you know, my friend is from California. Like that's what you're translating from Latin. But 
um, you know, I think of the Latin book that I have in my in my class that I try to teach myself out of whenever I have a chunk of time. And the things you're translating are Aesop's fables. The things right. you're translating are is Horace and Virgil and these sorts of these things. So you're getting this smuggled in education with the actual act of translating as well. You're getting in this sort of the smuggled great thinkers. Which is then the uh, anyway, that, that's the point Lewis from the quote you referenced earlier is making that in in weight of glory is to say that th- there's the pain and misery of starting out in a language, but then the joy of mm-hmm. accomplishing it and getting to the point of understanding what's being said mm-hmm. and then um, res- responding to it in that same written language as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, that is the second chapter. So what's the point that Simmons is making that there are um, that at the beginning of this trek up the Mount, up Mount Parnassus, there is, um, there's difficulty and there is an ease and, an um, an easy way of living that is on the uh, near side of crossing, um, the Castilian spring, but to pass over it is to enter into difficulty. But the point of that is to then, um, summit Mount Parnassus is to, uh, uh, tap into the troves of, of great, thought in the Western world over the last thousands of years, um, that that is accessible. It's not the first thing you get from joining it from climbing, from climbing the mountain, but it is the goal and direction of it. It's not difficulty for the sake of difficulty, but it is difficulty for the sake of, um, accessing directly that knowledge. And I think that's all I got. Cool. 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 Thanks, Thomas. Well, this has been classical stuff you should know. And you can contact us via email at classicalstuff@veritasacademy.net. at veritasacademy.net. That is electronic mail, in case for those of you who are still new to this whole... Who have the monk patch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for our tweeters out there and our twits, you can twit at us at, at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff at twitter.net. And then you can check out our website, classicalstuff.net. And yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you if we possibly can. We try to reply to as many emails as we, as we can figure out how to do that. Email us in Latin and Greek only. Only. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you. And thank heavens we brought granola for this trip. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Up yes. The mountain. Up the mountain. Although all day we've just been hanging out at the spring and guys, I got to say, I really like it here. I'm sure. Pretty, yeah. Yep. Pretty sweet. Yep. Chatting with the oracles. They're weird folks. They, they are, are right. odd. Anyway, this has been Classical Stuff and these are the Classical Stuff boys signing off. Bye. Bye. Bye.